This morning is March 21st. It's Sunday. Our message this morning is chosen, tasked, and purpose. You know, when you send out a submarine with orders, they call it tasking a submarine. That's how I mean task, like T-A-S-K-E-D, tasked. Chosen, tasked, and purposed. Y'all turn to Zechariah. Hit Matthew and hang a left. It will not be long before you find Zechariah. Was that a fine worship service this morning? I encourage y'all, remember those words of prophecy. Sometimes we get used to people prophesying. We get used to those words coming. And it's not that we treat it with contempt. We believe it, but we don't cherish it like you would if it were not so commonplace. As I read Zechariah 4, which is where we're going to be this morning, it became evident to me, very clear to me, that every word of prophecy we've received for the last three or four uh, weeks is perfectly in line with the Scripture and is what God is doing in our midst. And it's beautiful because it's encouraging. And that's what prophecy is supposed to do. It's supposed to edify you. It's supposed to build your faith. It's supposed to cause you to be more like Jesus. It's not just uh, so that you'll know what's happening next. It's not, you know, just to give you direction in your life. None of those things. It's to edify you to be more like Jesus. Y'all in Zechariah 4? Yes. I want to set the stage here a little bit. Of course, our message is chosen, tasked, and purposed. But as we start in Zechariah 4, in verse 1, you need to know that Israel was finishing a time of captivity. They'd been in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. Yahweh had now issued a word for the temple to be rebuilt. The center of Judaism, the center of worship, the place that represented God's presence to them. That word had gone forth, but the people were concerned. In fact, the people were somewhat faithless. They were concerned that it couldn't be completed, and they were comparing it and concerned that it couldn't be as grand as Solomon's temple. See, under King Solomon, Israel ruled the known world, basically. Not really, but the, king, the kingdom of Israel was very, very large at the time. There was no war. They had peace and prosperity. So Solomon's was a, a wonder of the world, the most preeminent building on the planet at the time. And now they're rebuilding, and it's just a foundation, and it looks small. And the people are concerned that it won't be completed, and they have no faith for it. And they're also concerned that if it is completed, it won't be as good as the original. Not all that unlike when you start a church. As soon as the word of faith comes forth, begin it. The first thought that enters your mind is, what if I can't complete it? What if ten years from now, nobody's there? That's the first kind of doubt and fear that attacks a human being when they're called. I want to encourage you to reread Zechariah this morning. What God told the people of Israel... He's told me in this church, and it lines up perfectly. So we're going to start in Zechariah 4, verse 1. Then the angel who talked with me returned and awakened me, as a man who is waking from his sleep. He asked, What do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it, with seven channels to the lights. 
Also there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. Does anybody know what he's describing? If you have seven channels and they all come down into one stand, we're describing a menorah, a lampstand. You remember in the book of Revelation, churches had lampstands in them? One of the first things that somebody said about this fellowship that was encouraging to me is God's lampstand is there. With that in mind, we'll keep reading. I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? He answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of Yahweh to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What are you, O mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plum in the hand of Zerubbabel. The seven, eye, the seven are the eyes of the Lord which range throughout the earth. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on the right and left of the lampstand? Again I asked, what are these two olive branches beside the two gold pipes that pour out golden oil? He replied, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I said. He said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. The people's concerns in Israel was that the temple might not be finished. If you go begin that work, you might not be able to complete it. And if you can complete it, will it begin to measure up to what we're used to? Those are the two concerns the people have. God responded in five ways. If you take notes, I want you to hit this. Five ways God responded. First, He showed them, my lampstand is there. I've spoken the very word that I gave Zerubbabel saying build this temple is a lampstand in that place. In other words, God's presence was on the word to do it. The second one is, it would not be by Zerubbabel's abilities that it would be completed. It's not by might, it's not by strength, but it is by my spirit, says the Lord. God's lampstand is in this place because he told us to do this. It's not by our might, not by our spirit that it's accomplished, or not by our might or strength, but by God's spirit that it's accomplished. The third is, get this, he told Zerubbabel, what, O mountain, are you before Zerubbabel? Do you remember the word of prophecy three weeks ago that we've all been clinging to? God is crushing the obstacles before us. That's what he told us. He was crushing the obstacles. God encouraged the people first by saying the lampstand was there. Second, by it didn't depend upon a man's might or strength. It was his spirit. Third, by saying even if there's a mountain in the way, God himself would crush it. Isn't that the same thing he told us here three weeks ago in prophecy? He's crushing it. The fourth was, come on guys, Zerubbabel's already laid the foundation. In other words, we've already begun the work. That ought to be encouragement. Look at what it took to get Israel to a place where they could even begin the work. I brought you out of captivity. You're in a place where you're, you're plotting off the ground. He's fixing to pick up the plumb line to lay the foundation. The work's beginning. That ought to be encouragement. Was that not true here? In addition to God's lampstand being here, 
In addition to him telling us, it's not by our might or our strength, it's by his spirit. In addition to him crushing the obstacles before us, we can look and say, hey, we know he's going to complete it because the work's begun. Look around you. Is there not a foundation here? Of course there is. Of course there is. And then the fifth thing he said was that he had anointed two for the task. Say, hey, man, what are those olive trees? What is all that? Again, I asked, what are those olive trees? And how did God respond? He said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. In this work, God has put his lampstand. His spirit resides in this place. We worship this morning. Was God's spirit here? Absolutely. We are encouraged that it doesn't depend upon my abilities, on Matt's abilities for this work to, to be completed. Because God said it would be by his spirit. The third thing. Any obstacles that we face, like Zerubbabel in the mountain, God told us He would crush before us. The fourth thing is look around us. The work's already begun. It's happening. The fifth thing was, and I've anointed two special people for the purpose of building this temple. And before you today, there's two men that God has anointed for the purpose of building this temple. We were chosen, we were tasked, and we have a purpose. Each of you have been chosen by God for something. You are tasked by God for something. And you have a purpose. I'm going to relate everything that I preached to you today to my choosing or calling, to my tasking, my assignments, and to God's purpose in my life. Because we're supposed to be examples. I'm supposed to teach by example. I tell you what. The fears that Israel had are the same fears that people have in the church when something starts. Have you ever noticed nobody seems to be excited about a church that starts except the people who are starting it? And every church in the area seems to think it's too close to their church. You know, you hear that kind of stuff all the time. We know we're not supposed to compete, but whenever somebody's called, it seems to bother the called. Whenever somebody's assigned a task, it seems to bother people that have different tasks. Whenever somebody perceives a slightly different purpose on your life, they think because it's different than the purpose on their life, something must be wrong with you. This morning we're going to look at this in Zechariah that teaches us about Israel, that teaches us how that temple began, Zerubbabel's temple, and relate it to our church. Just to recap, I want to make this very clear. Okay? Life-changing ministries has God's menorah and lampstand in it. I don't need that testimony from anybody else. I feel it. You know, I'm not telling you about something I heard. I'm telling you about what I have witnessed and handled in this place. We have God's promise to accomplish it by His Spirit. If He didn't give you that promise, that's okay. You don't have to have faith for it. It may not be your task or assignment, but it is mine. It is Matthew's, and we have faith for it. So, whether or not somebody wants to add to or take away from that message makes no difference to me. It's what God called me to do. Thirdly, we received a prophetic word that God would crush the obstacles before us. So we're not going to be dismayed when we see huge obstacles. God told Zerubbabel that the mountain before him was nothing. And he told me that he would crush the obstacles before us like a man who steps on dirt and it crushes beneath his feet. So far we've seen that happen. Which brings us to the fourth point. Our work's already begun. It took miracles to get us here. 
some have thought or said, oh, they began that in haste out of their own strength. I, I don't care. I know the miracles that it took me to get here. The way that God prepared for years. I've just watched in the last month miracles unfold around the Perot's life to get them here. So I'm encouraged the work is already begun and soon the plumb line will be in the hand. In fact, you see it today. Once a foundation is laid, you take the plumb line and you begin to stretch out the corners. You begin to, from the cornerstone that is Jesus, measure out the building. You build according to that example that you see. And at the capstone, it needs to be similar to the cornerstone because they have to be symmetrical to each other. Well, I'm beginning this work looking at Jesus and the plumb line is in our hands. And the fifth point is, I know that He's anointed two special people. Out of everybody on the earth that is called, that is chosen, that is tasked, that is assigned, that have purpose, I know that this church has two with the same calling, the same task, and the same purpose. So I don't care if other people don't share that task, calling, or purpose. It's what God's called us to do. And this is not meant to encourage anybody except the people that are right here. I'm not preaching this for somebody beyond these walls. I'm preaching this for us that are within these walls. This message didn't go out to America. This message didn't go out to Africa. It didn't go out to Ethiopia. This message was for the people of Israel because it concerned their temple. Well, this message concerns this church. So you get out of your mind that I'm talking about anybody else this morning. We're talking about us. You know what? Churches ought not measure themselves against other churches. They are to measure themselves by the same criteria. Did God give me a word? Yes, He did. Is His presence there in a lampstand? Yes, it is. Is He accomplishing it by His Spirit and not my might? Yes, He is. Is He crushing obstacles before me? Yes, He is. Has the work begun? Yes, it has. Has He anointed people for the task? And choose the number of covenant. We've entered into a covenant. We're going to complete this task. Come hell, high water, or death. Nothing will separate us from it. Not... Anything. I don't need to elaborate on what anything else. Now that passage in Zechariah 4 says, These seven are the eyes of the Lord ranging throughout the earth. You say, what on earth was he talking about? Well, I didn't read chapter 3. He spoke about seven stones with inscriptions on them. And God was removing the sin. God has eyes that are ranging the earth. Turn to Second Chronicles 16 and we'll look at what that might be. I mean, what is the Father looking for? If He has eyes on His heavenly creatures, what is He looking for? Why would God have eyes that range the earth? That's 2 Chronicles 16. Verse 9. And I'm not turning there, so if I don't get this perfect, you, you know, forgive me. Or shoot me or throw a hymnal. Whatever. God says, For the eyes of the Lord range the earth, looking for those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You know what I need to judge myself by? You know what you should judge me by if you feel the need to judge me? Not whether you understand my purpose, not whether you agree with my task, not whether you think I was chosen, but is my heart committed to the Lord? See, who are you, O oh man, to judge another man's servant? Doesn't Romans 4, 4 or Romans 14, 4 say that? Why do we stand in judgment of another man's servant? I tell you what, I I have one master. We talked about this in Matthew 23 on Wednesday. One master, and that's Jesus. That makes me his servant. I'm not responsible for, I'm not subject to any other judgment. 
just His. Because I'm His servant. You don't go next door for their, their maid, their employee, and criticize the way she cleans their house, do you? No, it doesn't have anything to do with you. It's not your house. It's not your servant. Why do we criticize other, other servants of God as if they were our servants subject to our criticism? They're not. Judge me by whether or not my heart's committed to Jesus. If you find the need to judge me, then do it that way. And I do want to remind you, Corinthians teaches that the man with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. Anything the Spirit shows you, you can make a judgment about. But that same man's not subject to anyone else's judgment. It's not my responsibility to make anybody understand what God has spoken to me by, my, by His Spirit. It's not my responsibility to justify God's Word to me to other people. It's simply my responsibility to be obedient. John 4, 22-24, and again, this is from memory, so don't shoot me if it's not perfect. Says the kind of worship, or a time is coming and has now come when the Father will seek the kind of worshipers that worship in spirit and in truth. The truth is, the eyes of the Lord are ranging the earth. They're looking for something. Number one, to absolve people of sin. That's, that's what Zechariah was talking about if you read three and four. Number two, to find people whose hearts would be fully inclined to the Lord. And the third is, if their hearts are fully inclined to the Lord, that they would worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, when we think of worship, we think of what we just did in here a little while ago. Romans teaches us, Romans 12, that that's not worship. That's a part of worship, but that, that's not all... In, music is not all there is to worship. Worship is presenting every member of your body, the hairs on your head, the fingers on your hand, the toes on your feet, to God as a spiritual act of worship. Worship is, Lord, do with me anything that you want, whether people agree with it, don't agree with it, whether it increases my reputation, decreases my reputation, whether it brings me life or death, riches or poverty, do with me what you want. That's a spiritual act of worship, and that is what the Father is seeking. Not just somebody who can prophesy, not somebody who can speak in other tongues, not somebody who sings. That's what we think. We think, oh boy, that was spiritual worship. Sister so-and-so, she sang well, and brother so-and-so prophesied. That's the beginning. The spiritual act of worship is when you are 100% fully committed, and in every area of your body, you are submitted to the Lord. That is a spiritual act of worship, and that's what the Father is seeking. Well, if He seeks that, He must then choose people that are that way. Would you not say that's correct? If the Lord's looking for people like that, then certainly when He finds them, He must do something with them. That brings us to Acts 9. I'm going to turn with you this time. Amen. Y'all can say amen. You can say so be it. You can say anything but shut up. Acts 9 Tell me about Saul. Saul, Saul Paulus of Tarsus. Was his heart fully committed to God before he was a Christian? Why on earth would you say that? Why on earth would you say Saul's heart was committed to God when he's out murdering people? Because the words of Jesus to his apostles were, there is a time coming when they will drag you before the synagogues and people who kill you will think they are 
doing a service to God. Paul thought he was doing a service to God by persecuting the church of God. And as soon as he found out that it was Jesus he was persecuting and that that was not God's will, did his life change? Well, don't stone me if you think I'm doing something wrong. Perhaps God will look at me, change my direction. See, because my heart is fully committed to Him. You can't change it. I won't allow you to. Only God could do that. No man could change Saul's mind. He was working zealously, more zealously than all of his peers. Jesus Himself changed Saul's mind. And listen to what He says to him. In Acts 9, verse 5, Paul or Saul speaks up and says, Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Hmm. I wrote 9.5, and that is not right. <laughs> go to 9.15. But the Lord said, this is God speaking to Ananias about going to see Saul. I apologize for getting that wrong. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. My point here is his heart was fully committed. God was looking for somebody like that. He did not yet know how to worship in spirit and truth. He is worshiping in spirit with all of his spirit. He's trying to follow God, but he didn't have the truth. So Jesus himself brought him that truth. From there, he speaks to Ananias and says, Ananias, I want you to go talk to him. And I said, oh, no, no, I'm not. You know, he uh, he's a bad guy. Whether Ananias approved or disapproved was totally beside the point. Why? Because God said, this man is my chosen instrument. Just like Zerubbabel and Joshua were God's chosen instruments in that rebuilding of the temple, the olive branches on the left and the right of the menorah, Paul was a chosen instrument by God. And you guys are chosen instruments by God. You may not have your task yet. You may not fully understand the purpose yet. But you have been chosen by God. That's why you're here this morning. Your job is to find out what your tasks are and what the purpose for those tasks is. Was it only Paul who was a chosen instrument in the Bible? Because sometimes we want to make him a special case. He's different, you know. Incidentally, what was Paul's, what was he chosen for? What does it say? Go, this man is my chosen instrument to, to carry my name. Everything else falls into the task realm. He's chosen to carry the name. How that happens are the task. I'm just helping you understand where we're going with this. Your calling is why God chose you. Your choosing is, in general, what you are called to do. The tasks are how you do it. The specific assignments. The purpose is what God hopes to get out of you by calling you and giving you these tasks and assignments. In general, Paul was called to carry the name. You know what we call that? Apostles. Somebody who is appointed as a herald. Apostle means sent. It is somebody who is sent forth by Jesus Himself. That's all I have to say about that. In Genesis 18, 
we see somebody else who's called. And maybe not for what you think. See, one of the problems is, when we think of a calling, we think of the task. You know, called to preach in Mississippi, called to preach in Brazil, called to heal the sick at Brazoria County. The calling is you're setting apart for something, something general, like to carry the name. The task are the specifics of how you carry that out. The purpose is what God hopes to get out of you. In Genesis 18, we see another man who was called, who was chosen. Starting in 1818, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him. Why? So that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. What was Abraham called to do? He was called to direct his children and his household after him. Why? Well, all the tasks that that then involved were all the other things that Abraham did in his life. What was the purpose? The end result? Well, God would have a holy nation from him. That was the purpose. Everything in his life was building up to that. Paul was chosen to carry the name. Abraham was chosen to direct his children. Children and household. In Exodus 31, please turn there. We see a different kind of choosing. Thirty-one, one. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have chosen Bezalel. Who did he choose? Bezalel. Now we're going to find out for what in a minute. Son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with ability, and knowledge in all kinds of crafts. Why did he choose him? Verse 4. To make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze. To cut and set stones. To work in wood and to, right here, engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. God chose Bezalel for the purpose of engaging in craftsmanship. Now, you might say he chose him to build the temple, but that's not what he said. He chose him to engage in craftsmanship. One of the tasks was building a basin. Another task was beginning a curtain. Another task was whatever tasks were involved in that. His calling in general was to engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Don't think of your calling as the end result. Your calling is when God begins to show you that you're chosen for a purpose. It might be to excite people about God. It might be to teach all people everywhere. It might be to lay the true foundations of the faith. It might be as a herald from one place to another. It might be all kind of things. But you were chosen for a specific task. Abraham was just chosen to direct his household. Now, if you just had to place a carnal bet, What would you think would be greater? Being a craftsman? Being a herald? An apostle? Or directing your own household? You know, most of us would say, well, God appointed apostles first. The very faith that we have is called the faith of Abraham. If he had not directed his household in the ways of following the Lord, there would be no apostles. See, sometimes the parts of the body, the callings in the body that seem less honorable are really more honorable. Just because somebody's out front is the most visible does not mean it's the most important to God. After all, the Scripture says, we're just servants, each assigned his task. We need to be careful that we don't honor men beyond their task. We're not great because of our task. 
In fact, if you want to become great, you serve the least. Man, if Jesus didn't drive anything else home, He's driven that home in me. You want to be great? Serve the least. Your task does not make you great. Your calling does not make you great. In fact, it's wrong to say somebody's got a great calling, a high calling. You know, the Bible describes a high calling. It says, live lives worthy of your high calling. Everybody has a high calling. You know? Oh, well, his work is preaching and teaching. His work is the distribution of food. So his is more important than his. No, it's, it's really not. Not any more than your lungs are more important than your brain. You try to live without one of the two. I know a lot of people that are living without one of those. Yeah, I was just talking about people with emphysema, I'm sure. Right? Incidentally, was Bezalel anointed to work alone? Hmm. Maybe we ought to finish reading that. I have filled him with the Spirit. No, 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 no. Moreover, verse 6, I have appointed Oholiab, son of, Lord only knows, Ahishamach, of the tribe of Dan. Why did he appoint him? Why did he choose him? What does it say? To help him. Also, I have given him skill to all the things of the craftsmen to make everything I have commanded you. So, was Bezalel supposed to work alone? No. He was anointed. He was chosen. He was appointed for one purpose. To engage in all kinds of craftsmanship. Moreover, he was given somebody who was anointed, who was chosen, who was appointed. To help him. In that. So, this idea... You can only have two people or one person who's called and everybody else has got to be separated. No, some people are called to the help in the work. You know, that's not a two-headed freak. That's not a monster. That's not something that is abnormal or outside of God's working. He sent them out in pairs of two. Why do you think he did that? So, well, somebody has to be the leader. Well, yeah, it's Jesus. So, well, yeah, but somebody, somebody has to be the leader in the church. That's true. And you submit to one another out of love. But one's anointed for the work and the other's anointed to help in the work. But he's still anointed for the work. Isn't that true? Do y'all, I mean, am I making this up? Okay. Every one of us is chosen for a purpose. You are chosen. You need to find out what that is. When I was chosen, when was it? How did it occur? man who taught me a lot about Jesus said, you, you may question your salvation, but you'll never question the day you were called. Do you know what that really means? It means there may be days you don't feel saved. But there should never be a day when you don't remember that God chose you for a specific purpose. I know mine. God chose me. He set me apart as a chosen instrument. Now I'm receiving tasks. Matthew was chosen, set apart as a specific instrument. He's receiving his task. I'll tell you all more about that as we go. But the thing is, this is every Christian. Now that you have been chosen or called, you're assigned specific task. Turn to Acts 22. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's, no, that's, yeah. You want to be great? Don't do any service? Yeah, I got you. Yeah. And you know what? I, I have a feeling that there's a lot of people out there with that misunderstanding. It's like the least group of people, not yeah. the amount you serve. Yeah. yeah. You, you know what's interesting? <laughs> it's people who 
read that and they, they want to be great, which is really the, the motive is, is wrong. So they go pick you to serve because they think you're the least. Isn't that beautiful? Well, the word says serve the least, so here I am, Mandy. <laughs> yeah. I'm just teasing. I am just teasing. Y'all in Acts 22? Yeah, that's, that, that's right. Go find all the Zacchaeuses hiding in trees. Y'all in Acts 22? Starting in verse 8. Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. He's already a chosen instrument. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. The fact that he's a chosen instrument is given. The Lord's there speaking to him. He says he's a chosen instrument. Now he's to go to Damascus to find out all he is to do. Now we know from the previous reading, a lot of what Paul was called to do is suffer for the name. See, if he carries the name, he's going to suffer for the name. That's a natural consequence of carrying the name. You should realize that too if you're going to be called by the name Christian. Suffering is a natural consequence of being called by that name. Go watch the movie The Passion. He said if they do that to him, they're going to do it to you. The teacher is not less than the students. That's what he said. Paul was chosen and then he went to Damascus to find out all he was assigned to do. didn't happen in a day, did it? Most people think Paul spent 14 years. You always hear that that's gaining revelation. Yeah, that, that, that is true. He was gaining revelation. Not just the revelation that he wrote. Not revelation in doctrine. Revelation about what he was called to do. He knew in general from the moment he was born again. I mean, he says that later. He was chosen as a light to the Gentiles and the Jews, but didn't mean he knew how to do it. Didn't mean that he knew what tasks were involved in that. That was a process, and it started in Damascus. See, you can know that you're called to something. I'm called as a missionary, but not know where you're called to go. You can know that you're called as a missionary and where you are to go. I'm to go to Germany. But not know all the tasks that that's going to involve. In fact, you can be assured that there are times you won't know the task that's involved. Later we'll get into that's why it's important to know the general purpose too. Turn to 2 Corinthians 10. Y'all still love me? Better. <laughs> Second Corinthians ten twelve. We do not dare to classify or compare, compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, but will confine our boasting to the field God has assigned to us—a field that reaches. Even to you. Paul was assigned a task. One of those tasks was apostleship in a Corinthian church. So he didn't boast beyond that. In fact, there were other people because Paul didn't exert authority as a father to a child. Because he didn't exert authority as a great teacher and a little student. Because he didn't take some kind of unnatural authority. Something beyond what Jesus had given him. He only took authority to build up, not tear down. Other people who were carnal. He called them super apostles. 
They commended themselves by themselves. They measured themselves by themselves. Came in and did what Paul would not do. He says, you know, I can't believe you're going to put up with me like this. But after all, you put up with these people who pushed themselves in your face. He was assigned to a specific field. You're assigned tasks. You're assigned fields to work in. Don't worry about the crops growing next door to you. And for sure, don't worry about the crops growing a long, long ways away from you. You just worry about your field. Have you ever been concerned that corn's going to get up from one field, run across the road, and plant itself with the watermelons? Why are pastors always worried that, you know, the crop next door is going to affect their crop? Even if you think somebody's sowing bad seed in your field, what do you do? You let it grow, and then when it becomes evident by the fruit, you let, you let God weed it out and burn it up. It's so hard not to defend yourself. It is so hard to stand by and watch somebody sow bad seed. You want to run right out there, slap them, knock the seed out of their hand, kick it off into the dirt. All for the protection of the kingdom, right? God doesn't need your protection. Read Numbers 12. Look how Moses handled it. That's how the kingdom people are supposed to handle it. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 3. You know, sometimes the thesis of a paper is stated in the first paragraph, right? They tell you right up front, we're going to prove this by these three points. That's the most simple way to do it. Other times, it's hidden in the middle of a book, right? If there's a thesis to this message, it's this verse. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm repeating that because I can't seem to find it in my Bible. Verse 1. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? He didn't say they were mere men. Mere men are people without the Spirit. He said they're acting like mere men. For when one says, I follow Apollos, or I'm sorry, Paul, and another says, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? What, after all, is Apollos? By the way, what is Apollos? What is Paul? What does he say? Only servants through whom you came to believe. As the Lord has assigned... Each his task. Guys, we need to stop pastor worship. We need to stop lifting people up beyond where they go. When you go to your church, you treat your church, and I was taught this in a very good church. When you go to a church, you treat it like your high school. And anybody that goes to any other high school is a rival. And you'll fight to support yours as if everybody's a threat to it. If God put his lampstand in your church, nobody's a threat to it. Doesn't matter how close the crops grow. Doesn't matter who throws what kind of seed in it. Nobody can threaten it because the Lord told Zerubbabel, What, Zerubbabel, is that mountain before you? And He told us He would crush any obstacles that were before us. Everybody should take warning, though. Don't become an obstacle. Not before me, not before any other man of God. When you stand between the chosen instrument and the assigned task... You find yourself in contention with God. So I'm going to be very careful how much I criticize anybody around me. I have a right to make judgments by the Spirit when the Spirit shows me that. 
I do not have a carnal right to lash out at everything that I think might be wrong or, have a, or be threatening or that I just don't like. And I tell you what, there's a lot out there I don't like. An awful lot. And I have a hard time confining my speech and my thoughts and my actions to just what Jesus shows me. He did a great job of it. He did only that which he heard and saw the Father do. I do a miserable job of it. But I'm getting better. And I'm going to keep getting better. And you should too. And above all, you should expect that of each other. And set the example for your brothers. Because the Bible says you are all brothers. Get this Get this attitude in your heart. What after all is Billy Graham? What after all is Charles Finney? What after all is the Apostle Paul? What after all is Jimmy Swaggart or Pat Robertson's? Only servants. Jesus in Matthew 23 says, you're brothers. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't lord authority over each other. You are brothers. Does that mean they're not worthy of honor? Of course it doesn't mean that. It just means they're not worthy of the same kind of honor that you would direct towards Jesus. Your brothers, they're just servants of the king. They have a task that's different than yours. They're not lesser and they're not greater. Any more than your pinky is lesser or greater than your thumb. Incidentally, though, they do call the big toe the great toe. Because if it's gone, it hinders your walking, right? Does that mean we want to cut off the pinky toe, the little bitty one? No, you're handicapped without any of it. Some parts may seem to be more indispensable. But remember, Corinthians says those parts are worthy of more honor. The ones that are not don't seem to be indispensable. Guys, the little old lady that sits in the back of the church and prays for the church is every bit as important as the prophet in the church. Every bit as important as the pastor in the church. Every bit as important as the apostle in the church. But the word says a teacher is worthy of double honor. He is. That, what that means, and I want you to get this in your head real quick for me, okay? And I'm not saying that as if it's hard for you. It's not. What does it mean to show double honor to a teacher? It means that when he teaches doctrine, and you are running it through the filter of the Word in your mind, and you're weighing it because you have a responsibility from God to hear from God yourself, you give him credit more than you would just any old regular person off the street. You think, if I don't understand what he's saying, I, I might, need to, might need to dwell on it for a while before I just cast it out. That's what that means. The same way that if you know somebody to be an apostle in your life, doesn't make them a dictator in your life, but what it does mean is when they say, hey, I really think you ought to consider this again, you consider it again. I've got one master. And that's Jesus. You have one master, and that's Jesus. But we're all servants with different tasks, and one of my tasks might be helping you with yours. See, I bet you thought when I was talking about Bezalel and Oliab, I bet you thought that Bezalel was the leader, and Oliab was the little guy, right? The guys that are called great in the body are the ones that are serving the others. So is it the greater task to be assigned or to help those that are assigned? I don't know. You figure that out. But if you want to be great in the church, you serve the least. What's a pastor's job? He's to serve. So if he's great, it's because he's serving, not because he's a pastor. Or where's that title or whatever. I want to finish that real quick. So neither this verse 7. No, I'm sorry. Verse 6. Let's go ahead and go back to verse 5. And what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? 
only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God made it grow. Who made it grow? God. So if somebody plants a seed in your life, uh, in this setting right now, I'm staring at Eric Hill. Somebody planted a seed in his life. Andrew Russell at work. Somebody else watered it. I had a part in that watering. Just a small part. Somebody else watered it a whole lot. That's Buzz Tremaine. Did anybody make it grow? Only God. The rest of us were just servants. So I don't have ownership of his life. Buster May doesn't. And Andrew Russell doesn't. Does that make Andrew a father to him? Because he was there when he came into the kingdom? No. Not just servants through whom he came to believe. That's it. What would make somebody a father to him? When they show the kind of love that a father does to a child. Now, does that mean that they dictate like a child? No. Those terms are terms that express a kind of love. Not a kind of authority. Uh, Anyway, uh, yeah, I have trouble saying this stuff sometimes, but I'm believing that Jesus is helping me with it here. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose. And each will be rewarded according to his labor. They may have different tasks, different kinds of labor, but their purpose is the same. Now, if Cassidy plants and Mandy waters, what would be the one purpose that they both have in common, though? To see God watch it grow. And without the planting, God won't get it to grow. Without the watering, God won't get it to grow. So each of them were chosen instruments by God, one to plant, one to water, with the purpose that God would see it grow. See, your chosen instrument could be that you water. Could be that you plant. Your specific task might be that you sow seed in that field. Or that you water that field. But the purpose that you have in mind all the time is watching something grow. Your purpose is not to run around and make sure that everybody else has got their task right. Your purpose is not to criticize their task or to criticize uh, what they were chosen for or voice skepticism about it or try to rain on it or any of those things. It's your purpose is to see things grow. Do you remember that the apostles came and said, oh, hey, hey, man, uh, uh, those disciples are, are baptizing more than we. Let, should we stop them? Did Jesus let them stop them? No, he didn't. In fact, Jesus took the attitude, and Paul did too later. You hear it. It it does not matter what other people are out there saying, even if they're false apostles. At least the name of Jesus is getting out. You know? Didn't didn't even seem to bother him. Now, it would bother him greatly if it entered his church. See, within these four walls, I'm responsible for making sure. But I'm not responsible for going to check other fields. Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, that's right. You call people those. I'm not also, I'm not responsible for governing how everybody else is doing the work. And if I'm not responsible for it, I want you to hear this. Joyce Meyer said it, and she's right. If you have no responsibility in the matter, what should you also not have? An opinion in the matter. See, God didn't call me to sell multivitamins. So I don't have an opinion to express to you about multivitamins. God did not call me to sell cars. At least not this year. Several years ago he did. So I don't have an opinion about the kind of car you buy. Not an opinion from God. Paul had opinions that were from God and some that weren't. He said so when he wrote it. He said, I I say this, not the Lord. I'm not expressing the Lord's opinion here. I'm expressing mine. If you don't have responsibility in a matter, 
then you don't have the authority to express an opinion. And if you do express it, you sure can't enforce it. That's freeing, huh? Because a lot of people have negative opinions of your life. They don't have any responsibility for your life, so they have no authority in your life. You need to let it roll off you like water off a duck. Now that you've been chosen or called and you've been assigned a task, keep your eyes on the purpose, the outcome Jesus wants. He has a set purpose for your life. Look at Acts 13. Y'all learning anything here today? I tell you what, a preacher will step on your toes every now and then, and I hope things that I say challenge you. I hope when you think about it, you get a little upset with me sometimes. It would be just fine with me if you leave here thinking I am dead wrong, but you owe it to yourselves, and here's the teacher's worthy of double honor, you owe it to God and to me to at least examine the matter. Go find out. If you love me and you feel God anointing you to do so, come back and show me where I'm wrong. Not so we can debate, but because you love me. Most of the time when people have taught me stuff and I thought they were wrong, all my great study produced was the ability to eat crow when I found out they were right. You know how many times Buzz Tremay taught me something that I was sure was wrong and I went and studied and found out he was right? That's because God had anointed him at that point in my life to be a teacher. You know, that was a task of his as a servant that God was using. I also am chosen as an instrument. Also have my task. They're not subject to anybody's judgment. Doesn't matter what role we've all played in each other's lives. There's a day when my children will leave the direction of my household. What I think will still be important to them. You know, they'll, they'll still care whether or not dad approves. But their lives won't be dependent upon it. My parents threw me out of the house when I became a Christian. But that didn't make my Christianity fail. You know, my walk with God was not dependent upon them. That's when Jesus says, call no man father. That's what he's talking about. Your experience in Jesus does not depend upon any man like you're dependent upon a father to bring you into the world. You know, he said only servants through whom you came to believe. He didn't say servants who caused you to be born again. That's not possible. God is the father of our spirits. Acts 13 If you're denoting a slight attitude of independence in me, then it's good. I'm not being too subtle. (laughs) For when David, this is 1336, we're talking about now that you've been called or chosen and you've been assigned your task, you have to keep your eye on the purpose because he has a purpose. Acts 13, verse 36. When David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. David had a specific purpose in his generation. And you know what? He did not die until that purpose was completed. There is a purpose and it doesn't belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. And it certainly doesn't belong to any other man. God has a purpose for your life. He chose you as an instrument. He assigned you task because he has a purpose that he wants completed. When David completed his, his, when he realized he was chosen, 
when he was given tasks, when the last task was done and it achieved the purpose that God put him on the earth for, there's no longer a reason for him to be on the earth. Acts 2, verse 23. This is a sermon, and I'm picking it up in the middle. But it says, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Even Jesus' life had a purpose set by God. And men who were opposing him, who thought they were stopping his task and stopping his purpose, trying to snuff it out, eventually achieved the purpose. Because what they didn't know is they were killing the author of life. And had they known it, they wouldn't have done it. Because when they did it, it gave us freedom from death. The very set purpose that God sent Jesus into the world for. To give us freedom from death. There's a purpose you have in your generation. Nobody standing against it can stop it. It doesn't mean it's good for them, though, when they try. They just can't stop it. Not everybody who has a purpose... Not everybody who realizes their purpose, not everybody whose purpose is set before them as they're a chosen instrument and assigned their task, does their purpose. Look at Luke 7. You ever wondered, what's the deal with the Pharisees and Sadducees? Why were they so hard-headed? Matthew 23 says they sit in Moses' seat. So they had a position of authority. Were they chosen instruments? Yes. Were they given a task? Yes. It goes all the way back to uh, Exodus 18. When Jethro speaks to, is that Exodus 18? I think so. Mm. I think it's 18. But when Moses, or Jethro speaks to Moses, and he says, appoint some men. Give them some of your authority. They need to be capable men. They need to uh, hate dishonest gain. And they need to love the Lord. That is where the Pharisees, or the Sanhedrin, really, not all Pharisees, but the Sanhedrin derived its authority. So were they chosen? Yes. Did they have a task? Yes. The problem is they got off purpose. Luke 7, verse 29. All the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right, because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. They had a purpose on their life. They were chosen instruments. They sat in Moses' seat. They were assigned a task. The law told them what they were supposed to do. But even though they had a task, even though they were chosen by God, I mean, the authority was designed by God, they rejected God's purpose for their life. We need to keep our eyes on the purpose. It's not enough that you were chosen. That's great. You're you're supposed to be a herald. It's great that your field extends to that. But you still need to keep in mind God's purpose for your life. In general, what, what was the purpose of Paul and Apollos? To watch things grow. That's why Paul said, I have authority to build you up, not tear you down. He was supposed to be causing things to grow. The only thing he ever tore down was something that threatened the growth of the people. 
His final task was to get the message to Caesar because the purpose of, of him being a herald to the, to the Jews and the Gentiles was to get this true faith out everywhere. Paul's purpose in life was not just to see things grow. It was to establish the true faith. And I don't know if we'll read that, but I, I do have that scripture. I'll give it to you before it's over. The Pharisees rejected their purpose, but man, that's awesome. Be careful how you act, how you respond regarding the chosen and their task. Just because you don't understand, it may just be that you don't understand God's purpose in their lives. Look at Acts 5. We're going to wrap this up here in the next 10 minutes. So y'all please stick with me. I'd rather you shoot me than misquote me. So y'all be careful to get this stuff right. Acts 5. Verse 38. Therefore, in this present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or their activity, which is their task, is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Just because you don't understand somebody's activities, just because you don't see the purpose in their life, does not give you the right to criticize it. It does not give you the right to stand against it or try to stop it. Just because it doesn't fall within your realm of limited understanding does not give you the right to do those things. In fact, if you do, you very well may find yourself fighting against whose purpose? God's purpose in their life. So I encourage everybody, don't you dare stand between the chosen, their task, and God's purpose. Now, nobody does that on purpose, but you know how it happens? Oh, man, did you see that? You know what I think about that? that? Let me just tell you what I saw and what I think about it. You don't have the right to do it. You know, this is that message God gave me a long time ago about to judge or not judge. The only right you have to give judgment in a matter is when Jesus himself shows you. You don't have a right to do it out of hurt feelings. You don't have a right to do it because you feel like you've been honored or dishonored or respected or not respected. You only have the right as Jesus himself shows you and gives you the voice. See, when you blow the shofar, you're supposed to be blowing the authority of the ram. But if it's your own breath, it means nothing, even if you're holding the shofar in your hands. I'm supposed to be the voice of the king. I'm supposed to be his ambassador. I don't have the right to speak my own words. Do I? Often. Man, I'm trying. And I have to give an account for every idle word. Have you ever wondered what an idle word is? It's the words you didn't get from Jesus that you speak. Why would you have to give an account for it? Because if I sent Eric Hill as an emissary, as an ambassador from the United States to Japan, and the message I gave him was, buy more cameras. And he tells them, buy more cameras, and also bring me some videotapes and I'd like some sushi. He's got to give an account for that, because he brought them a message that I didn't send him with. He, uh, words are going to be attributed to me, that he never had the authority to use. See, the only words that should be attributed to God are the ones he told you to speak. But if you hold the position of authority, people often attribute your words to God, whether they were God's or not.
Acts 5 teaches us that we better be careful how we criticize people's purpose. And by the way, if people want to stand back and say, you know, I don't really believe that Eric and Matt are called to that. That's okay. I'm just asking them to stay out of my way. If it's of human origin, it'll fail. And they can rejoice over that if it makes somebody happy. But if it's God, if it's God, they'll find themselves fighting against God. And I, I want to be clear. Nobody's standing in my way. I'm, you know, nobody tackled me on the way to the pulpit this morning. All right? That, that's, that's, that's not what I'm getting at. I'm talking about using our lives as an example. And this relates to your life. Because you were chosen and you are assigned task and there's a purpose in it. And you know who usually stands in your way? Okay, I'll be be real honest. Let's talk about Samson. He was chosen for what? He was an instrument of warfare. What was his task? Destroy the Philistines. What was God's purpose in that? Liberating Israel. Who was the biggest hindrance to Samson in his life? The people he was supposed to be liberating. His friends, his family. They kept tying him up and handing him over to the enemy he was supposed to be setting them free from. Christians do it every day. When the anointed man of God who happens to have a church next door to you across the street, is out there trying to liberate the Israelites and your purpose is to see things grow, we get confused and we start killing each other. We don't like a point of doctrine. Maybe they are wrong. So what? It's not your job to judge that. Even if it is wrong, it's not your job to judge that servant because you're not his master. In fact, there's not a man on earth that is your master. Jesus makes it very clear and you better get that in your spirit. Nobody's your master, not even if you want one. Not even if you want somebody to tell you what to do and how to do it. Nobody has that right. That right belongs to Jesus. And you shouldn't... It's not so much that somebody's trying to exert that authority in your life, it's that we have a natural inclination to want it. To want people to do that for us. It's wrong. It's wrong. Otherwise, we could just return to the law and have people enforce it in our lives. God wants to make, He wants His purpose in your life to be clear. Turn to Hebrews. I've got to wrap this up so it will fit on a CD. <laughs> I'm not worried about Eutychus falling out the window. I'm worried about it not fitting, being too many megabytes to fit on a CD. It's funny how concerns change through the years, you know. <laughs> Hebrews 6. Starting in verse 13. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it by an oath. And he goes on to teach about that, and that's the hope that we all have. God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose clear to everybody concerned. Matt and I, along with our families, I do have one more comment on that before we go there. God has a purpose that is sometimes beyond what people grasp. He did some harsh things to Israel, didn't he? In fact, 
when Paul wrote the book of Romans, and he was so hard on these Jewish believers who were trying to force Gentiles to live like Jews, and he was correcting them. You know, you think you're blind to the to the guy, uh, guy <laughs> I can't talk, a guide to the blind, and you know, uh, uh, a helper of children, and all of those things. This uh, arrogant, condescending attitude of infallibility that they had towards people. When he was correcting all of that, at one point in Romans 8:28, he says, "For God works in all things together for the good." Of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. See, there's a purpose that God had, but it involved negative things for Israel. It involved them being blinded for a time that you and I might come in, that there might be one new man made, that all of these things happen and they were discouraged because it looked as if God was against them, but he had a purpose in it. God killed or allowed or gave his son over to be killed for a set purpose. Don't be discouraged in your life when it looks like your task, when it looks like things in your life are negative or against you. There may yet be a purpose in it. If somebody doesn't die, nobody gets raised from the dead. If there's not a famine, then there's never the testimony that God can keep you alive in a famine. God uses all things even seemingly bad things, to work for those that love Him and are called according to God's purpose. Now that verse was speaking about Israel, but it's applicable to anybody who's called according to God's purpose. If you're a chosen instrument that's been assigned task, God will use those who criticize you. He'll use those that do whatever it is that is done that may be discouraging together for your good. He'll work it out to be good. You know, I grew up in this faith listening to stories about people who were sanding stones in Buzz's life. My initial thought was, oh man, those bad people. Here's the thing. Even if they were bad people, God used that to further the purpose on his life. Why would it be any different in our lives? Why would it be any different in your life? God will use everything that is around you for the furthering of His purpose. Now, I love you and I only want to be a good influence in your life. But there are times that God will use me as a sanding stone in a way that's not pleasing to me. You know, where maybe I'm on the wrong side of the battle. But God uses that for your purpose. And He has the right to use a vessel for noble or ignoble purposes. And we think we're either one vessel or the other. Not really true. All of us kind of have the propensity for both. Peter, he looks at and says, get behind me, Satan. Later, he tells him, feed his sheep. He he looks at Peter and says, hey, man, uh, you're you're blessed. You know, you're a rock that the the fact that you received this revelation, uh, you're blessed beyond men, you know. And then the next breath, he says, get behind me, Satan. Noble and ignoble. He said, well, Peter sinned there. He he did bad. He, He tried to talk the Lord out of going to the cross. Yeah, and it was still for your benefit. That the purpose of God might be served. Well, how? Well, it was written. You wouldn't understand that was sin if it wasn't written about. You know, even Saul. Think about Saul's life. Saul carried out certain things. Some noble, some ignoble. But it served God's purpose. We learned about a type of the Antichrist. (laughs) You know? How about the dude that touched the ark and died? You know? Seemed negative for him, right? But it's good for us because there's a message in it. God's purpose is being served. Pharaoh was raised up for a purpose. God uses things for a purpose. Matt and I, along with our families, 
were chosen by Jesus. This fact is confirmed in many ways. It's been confirmed privately, and it's been confirmed publicly, even through ordination. Our task has been assigned to us by Jesus and not any man. So with the same spirit that Paul said he went to Jerusalem, but they added nothing to his message, that's that's our attitude. People shouldn't be surprised by that. My task was given to me by Jesus. I don't care what anybody else said. doesn't mean that they're not good people. doesn't mean I don't love them and that their opinion is important to me. It is. It's just not going to change my message. I will not allow anyone to add or take away from our task. It's begun and we're building His church. The purpose of God for choosing us and assigning tasks is the same as every other servant through whom you may have come to believe. Our purpose is to see lives change and brought into the kingdom and benefit it. See, ultimately, there are servants all over this city, all over this state, all over other states and all over the nation that have been chosen by God that have different tasks than mine. But our purpose is all similar. We're building the kingdom. I have authority to build the kingdom. I don't have authority to tear it down. If I don't like your personality, if I don't like your delivery, if I don't like the color of your hair, if I don't like the way that you're on TV, if I don't like all those things, I still only have authority to build the kingdom, not tear it down. Now, I'm responsible for the sheep in my church. I'm going to protect you. Part of that's exposing false teaching. Okay? I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the critical tongues that we all seem to have. Anything that's different must be wrong. I want you all to remember Romans 14.4. It teaches you that a servant stands or falls to his own master. We all have one master. Matthew 23 says it. That master is Jesus. I stand, Matthew stands, to Jesus and Jesus alone. And if you think we're going to fall, that's okay. You're entitled to that. But the Bible says Jesus is able to make us stand. Now, I'm not asking anybody to place any faith in us. I'm asking people to place faith in God's ability to direct His church because His lamp stands here. Now, here's how this applies to y'all. We're going to close and we're going to pray for Eric. Each one of you is chosen. You need to find out what you were chosen for. Then as a task comes to you, whether others agree with it or don't agree with it, they're not the assigners of task. That comes by Jesus. Jesus gives you your work to do. And it's for a greater purpose. You need to keep the purpose in mind even if you don't understand the task. See, there are times I've been out there and I didn't know what my next task was, but I knew what the general purpose on my life was. And it helped me find the next task. Eric's called. He's a chosen instrument. Miller is called. Chosen instrument. David is. Mandy is. All of you are. There are tasks that you will be given. One task right now might be to sit and absorb all from me that you can learn. Another task might be that you go to Okinawa or Colorado Springs. Whether I agree with that or disagree with that or any of those things is all irrelevant. You owe me some respect. You owe your pastors some respect. But ultimately, it is God's decision because He has a greater purpose that will be served. That's what I'm trying to teach. So submit to your leaders. Love them. Pray for them. Don't let submission to any man outweigh your submission to Jesus. That would be disrespecting those men because that's not their goal. No man of God's goal is to have you place more weight in what they say than what God says. That's Phariseeism. That's, that's Popeism. That's I'm infallible. Listen, you know, that, that's wrong. 
And I'm not suggesting that that goes on anywhere. What I'm really encouraging is some independent seeking God for your choosing or calling, for your tasking, and for the purpose in your life, and then allowing others to help you manage it. See, you can get the task and have it 90% right, but maybe it needs to be polished by some other helpers in your life. Say, you know, you're right, you are called to do that, but are you sure now's the time? Are you sure you should do it in that way? See, I was chosen in 1993, no doubt. My tasks were not so clear in 1993. But because I was chosen, I ran right out to perform it, and God appointed some people in my life to help me figure out how to get those tasks right to give me a firm foundation of what the purpose was so that I could complete the task. And it's my responsibility to do that and no one else's. It's Matt's responsibility to do that and no one else's. We are chosen by God as heralds of His gospel to carry His name. We are tasked by God to build this church. And the purpose is to see lives changed. Find out what you were chosen by God for. Find out what you are tasked to do and find out what the purpose of those tasks is and you'll be a happy Christian all the days of your life. Stand up. We're going to close.